Well, again, good morning and welcome to Grom Law. We are so glad that you are here with us today. Again, you picked an awesome, awesome Sunday to be here, uh, no matter where you find yourself on this whole faith journey, whether you're, this is your, literally your first time walking into a church or whether you've been coming to church literally for your entire life ever since you were a little kid. Uh, whether you wanna be here, some of you, we know you roll out of bed and you're like, yes, I get to go to Grom Law today. And others of you are like, dang it, today is that day where so-and-so forced me to go. I don't really care why you're here. I'm just glad that you're sitting in the seat where you are. If this is your first time here with us, I just wanna pause real quick and again, just say you are so welcome here. We know uh, how intimidating it can be walking into a new place, uh, how sometimes uncomfortable it can be walking into a new place, but we're so glad that you decided to overcome that fear and uh, again, make Grumlaw a part of your week. Also challenge you with this and say, uh, make sure you come back at least a couple times. We think it takes like three or four times to really get an accurate feel of what we're all about here. So don't let this just be like a one and done uh, experience. Don't be a Kentucky basketball player. Come back at least a couple times. A couple of you got that reference. That's good. Uh, come back a couple times and uh, we're, we're confident that, that God will actually start working in your life in such a way that you'll want to be here each and every week, even as maybe crazy as that sounds to you right now. As alluded to, uh, we are in this series right now called Pray. How's that for creativity and naming? Uh, in fact, today we are in part three of six. Uh, so it's kind of like you're stepping into a movie like 45 minutes after the movie has began and, and now you're that person that's leaning over to your friend or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife. And you're like, hey, tell me what's going on. And they're trying to keep their eye on the movie, but have no fear. You don't need to bother anyone. Uh, if you haven't been here for this entire season, you can go to com slash messages and you can catch yourself up there. You can either listen or actually watch the messages there. You can also find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcasts. We know plenty of you are taking advantage of that. Now, what we've been doing in this series uh, is we've been considering how Jesus teaches us to pray, not, not how I would teach you how to pray. I'm not nearly arrogant enough to try to convince you I have that completely figured out. Uh, not even how Grumlaw would teach you how to pray, but again, how Jesus would teach us to pray. Because no matter where you find yourself on this whole faith journey, I guarantee this, we all have some preconceived notions about prayer. Now, now some of those preconceived notions could certainly be accurate, they could certainly be true, whereas others of them, when we compare it to, again, how Jesus teaches us to pray, they might indeed be wrong. And if you're a Jesus follower, and this is why this becomes important and why we would spend six weeks talking about prayer. If you are a Jesus follower and, and you're not spending that quality alone time with God, quality time just sharing honest feelings and conversing with God, your relationship with God is absolutely suffering as a result. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, again, maybe you got bribed into showing up here today. Maybe you're just here and you're kind of exploring. You don't really know where you stand on this whole thing. You're not even sure if Jesus was a real guy. We think it's really, really worth considering how Jesus teaches us to pray because if you do ever decide to take that step to follow Jesus, if you ever decide to kind of cross that line and become a Jesus follower, and we definitely hope that you take that step someday. I mean, that's certainly our prayer. That's why we're doing what we're doing here every Sunday morning. The key to true intimacy and the key to actually having a relationship, what could actually be called a relationship with God, lies in getting prayer right. And for most of us, most of us, we probably never really even considered that prayer is something that we might learn how to do. But wouldn't you know it, a couple thousand years ago, Jesus is hanging out with his 12 disciples. I mean, the 12 guys that he spent virtually every waking moment with when he was here on earth, his 12 best friends, and they kind of sheepishly approach him one day and they're like, 
Jesus, well, will you teach us how to pray? And, and, and Jesus is kind of taken aback by the question. He's like, what? Like, I can't believe you're asking me that right now. I and mean, we spent a lot of time together at this point. We spent a lot of time praying. What have you guys been doing while we've been praying? Uh, and, and he's like, you guys are, are Jewish men. You grew up going to church. You grew up with synagogue as a part of your life. I can't believe that you're asking me this question. But nonetheless, he tells him, sit tight, sit down, get out your notepads, get out your pens, write this stuff down. We are not going any farther until we get this figured out. And he begins to tell them how to pray. Now, interestingly enough, and we began to unpack this in week one, Jesus doesn't just jump right into the how. Remember, the question is how to pray. Jesus teaches how to pray. Instead, he actually begins teaching them how to pray by telling them how not to pray. And he stresses the importance of the where. He says, where you pray matters. Where you pray absolutely matters. And he breaks it down like this. He says, get alone and eliminate distractions. Get alone and eliminate distractions. And so we challenged all of you in that first week to find that place. Find that place where you can truly get alone and eliminate distractions. And if you weren't here in week one, I'll challenge you now. Find that place where you can really get away and spend quality time with your creator. And then starting last week, we began to dive into this prayer that I'm confident we're all at least vaguely familiar with. No matter how religious or not religious you are, we've all seen this at some point in our lives. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, this prayer gets plenty of attention. In fact, some of you, even as I was reading that right there, you're like saying it with your mouths, right? And you're like, I'm not even gonna look at the screen. I have that memorized, of course, because I am a good Christian. But what we maybe don't pay quite as much attention to are the three words that Jesus says right before this prayer comes flying out of his mouth. See, Jesus says, and we began to unpack this last week, pray like this. Pray like this. And we're given a little detail here that, that might ruffle some of our religious feathers, particularly those of you that have grown up going to church, and especially if you were maybe part of a more traditional or conservative church environment. I have some hot news for us. that This was never supposed to be some ritualistic prayer that, that, that you have to memorize in order to be a good Christian. This was never meant to be this thing that's supposed to be on our tip of our tongue that we're ready to repeat this at the priest or, or, or the pastor's command. No, the reason that Jesus said pray like this is because the Lord's prayer, which we often refer to that as such, because the Lord's prayer was meant to be a model for how to pray. He said pray like this. He didn't say pray these exact words. He said pray like this. Jesus gave us a model, not a religious spell. He gave us a model, not a religious spell, which is a good thing. Because for most of us, you probably figured out by your 10th birthday that spells don't work. You got a wand for Christmas or your birthday. You got a stick in the yard. You went outside and you started waving at things. You said abracadabra. You said the words just like the movie and nothing happened. Because spells are not a Christian thing. Spells are a magic thing. And while Hogwarts and Harry Potter might be entertaining, it's not reality. And we, at least around here, are not trying to convince you of magic. You sense from an early age that magic wasn't true, that there were smoke and mirrors at work, that behind the scenes there had to be something going on, that it couldn't possibly be reality. And my guess is, 
is that if you've ever been a part of kind of like the religious chant environment, the say this specific prayer and all your sins will suddenly be forgiven and all your problems will go away, the remember these words and you'll just kind of miraculously get better, the repeat this a dozen times and you will be sure to get this. If you've ever been a part of something like that, it probably didn't sit totally right with you. At least not initially. And your instincts did not fail you because that's not Jesus thinking. That is magic thinking. Now, as I reflected on this, I kind of took it for granted growing up. I grew up in part of this incredible environment where my parents always modeled prayer to me really, really well. They were always just sharing honest feelings with God. I saw my parents pray uh, and cry as they were praying. I saw them, you know, with joy on their faces as they pray. It was always a conversation. I always saw it modeled to me as this way, okay, like you're actually talking to God. So much so that the first time I kind of witnessed like the religious chant environment, it really took me aback. I remember it actually quite well. I was in grade school. I don't remember my exact age. Uh, but I had a lot of friends that lived on our street. We, had a sub, we lived in a subdivision uh, that was connected to an elementary school. So a lot of people moved there for that specific reason because of its proximity to the school. And so I had tons of friends up and down my street. And all the time I'd be over at friends' houses for dinner. And unfortunately, most of my friends' parents weren't religious. They weren't Christian. And so, you know, they just kind of start digging into their food once the, you know, dinner was served. But on one particular occasion, I remember this. Finally, I was over at a friend's house and they looked at me and they said, hey, Shay, we pray before our meals. I'm like, Nice. I'm not the only kid on the block that does this. This is fantastic, right? And so they said, okay, we're gonna hold hands. And I was like, okay. Like, I mean, it wasn't something we did before every meal, but we had done it, you know, we did it every once in a while at Christmas, you know, and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, I can, I can hold hands. I can get down with this. And then they got into this prayer that I'm confident some of you have probably heard before. And immediately I felt ostracized because I didn't know the words. I thought like dad was gonna just start sharing some honest feelings and thanking for the food, you know, whatever. But they all like hold hands, they all bow their heads. And I was like, oh, okay, yep, bow my head, got it. And they said, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for this food. By his hands, we are fed. Give us God our daily bread. And then at the end, they did this thing where the hands started going up and down and they said, we love you. And I was like, what the heck is happening right now? I never seen something like that. Like I half expected Jesus to come crawling out of the casserole. It's like, what is this? Like it, it, I was embarrassed, I, I was confused. I had no idea what was going on because I had never been a part of the religious chant environment. I just assumed that the environment I grew up in ignorantly was the way that everybody did things. I assumed that that was normal. That prayer was truly just sharing honest feelings with God. And so once I was exposed to that type of environment, it really took me aback. And I remember thinking as a little kid, and I still think it now, where did that come from? <laughs> because it definitely didn't come from Jesus. Now, some of you, you, you might feel yourself, maybe your blood rising, because again, that's, that's kind of the, the environment you grew up in. But just think of it this way. You would never, ever read the New Testament. You know, the, the, the part of the book, the second half of the Bible, that documents Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection and the rise of the early church. You would never read that part of the Bible and walk away with the conclusion, okay, yep, I gotta say specific prayers to get specific things. A person told us that, and it certainly wasn't Jesus. Jesus said again, pray like this. And then he gave us a model. And so last week we started diving in to that model. Pray like this. He says, our Father in heaven, May your name be kept holy. Now, 
That's kind of interesting. The model that Jesus gives us, again, Jesus gives it to us, not me. The model that Jesus gives us, notice that it doesn't start out with tell me everything that you want and tell me everything that you need. Come on, let's hear it. Tell me everything you want. Tell me everything that you need. No, Jesus says, praise me. Thank me. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know that you have some stuff that you need. Come on, come on. I, I know that you have a bunch of stuff that you really, really want and I promise that we will get to that. But before we get there, Praise me, thank me, take a minute to recognize just how holy and set apart I really am. And so last week, Philip Box, who uh, was a guest speaker with us from Miles City, uh, our sending church, the church that was instrumental to getting us started, he challenged us with this. Before you ask him, adore him. Before you ask him, adore him. Before you get into all that stuff that you want, before you get into all that stuff that you really think that you need, before you get into kind of like your prayer Christmas list, take a second to praise and thank God. And then he continues, and this is where we're gonna kind of spend the brunt of our time this morning. He says, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if you're anything like me, you kind of get anxious when you read this. Because you're like, okay, Jesus, we're already two parts into this and we still haven't got to tell you what we want and what we need because we kind of think that's the most important thing. And again, Jesus is saying, sit tight. I promise that part is a coming. In fact, if you're really interested, that part's coming next week. But after you praise and thank me, I want you to pray the four hardest words that any human being could possibly pray, which I know sounds like a wild, like pastor exaggeration, but it's absolutely the case. Your will be done. God, I want your will to be done, not my will to be done. I have a really close friend, uh, and he, he will randomly kind of call me, just random questions, and uh, oftentimes he'll call me about financial advice, and how can I put this politely? Um, he has a propensity to make less than intelligent financial decisions. That nice? Uh, okay, so he calls me this one day and I could tell he's super excited and it was kind of like, you know, the excitement in his voice kind of led me to believe that he had already made his mind up so I don't really know why he was calling me. Uh, and I'm not gonna give, I'm gonna kind of speak in vague terms here because I'm pretty confident he listens to these podcasts and he's gonna call me like, what the heck? So anyway, uh, he calls me and he says, uh, he says, hey, I think I'm gonna buy a new car. And I'm like, already thinking, no, you probably shouldn't do that. And he explains to me, he's like, you know, winter's coming, so I gotta get, you know, four-wheel drive, and so I'm thinking, I found this car, now at the time, this is about a year ago, and so it, was, it wasn't a brand new car, but it was about a year old, so it was 2017, he wants to buy a 2016, a pretty nice-looking SUV, he's like, so, so here's why, he's like, what do you think? And I'm like, all right, did you call me just so you could get a pat on the back and get told, way to go, buddy, or do you want me to actually tell you, me, you my opinion? And I'm like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I want you to tell me your opinion. I was like, okay, uh, no, don't do this. This, is a, this would be a bad decision. You just told me how much that vehicle cost. I know how much money you make because we had done budgeting and stuff together. This is one of the things that I'm pretty passionate about because I see a lot of people my age and, and older and younger, but particularly it seems like a lot of people my age make some terrible financial decisions that they don't really realize are going to cripple them for years and years and years to come. So anyway, I, I knew what his budget was. I knew how much money he had savings. I knew roughly how much he made a year. And I said, you cannot afford this. But then he comes back to me, he's like, but Shay, they'll give me the loan. I'm like, yes, they will. I have no doubt that they will give you the loan. That does not mean it is the wise decision. You should not buy this vehicle. So we talk for like 20 minutes. I tell him all the reasons that it's a bad idea. Not to mention he has a perfectly working vehicle with like 70,000 miles on it. And so I ask him, well, what about that car? He's like, oh, no, 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 I already got that all figured out. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, save up money after I buy this new car, and, and I'm going to pay that vehicle off really aggressively, uh, and then once I get it paid off, because he was still making payments on it, then it's mine, then I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to take all that money and put it into the SUV that I'm about to buy. And he's looking at me, I'm like, is this a joke? Like, I, I don't know what to say to this. This is a terrible idea in every facet. Don't do what you are about to do. Like, this is a really bad idea. So we talk a little bit more, and at the end of the conversation, I tell him, I say, I, I said his name, I said, hey, <laughs> Ultimately, this is your decision to make. Your will be done. And wouldn't you know it, 48 hours later, he bought the car. Smart decision. Now, in those moments, it's so frustrating, isn't it? I mean, th th those are such trying moments for it. It's so hard for us to bite our tongue and, and not lash out on that person for making such a foolish, terrible decision. I mean, to just go along with it like everything's okay, like he didn't just make this really, really poor decision. We know that we are right, or at least we're like 99.9% .9 sure that we're right. But think about this, and this is a pretty interesting thing about human beings. Have you ever been wrong when you were 100% certain you were right? You ever got yourself into a moment where you're like, I was sure about that. Not so much anymore. I mean, in that moment, you knew you were right. There wasn't a doubt in your mind. He was wrong. She was wrong. They were wrong. I was right. But then wouldn't you know it, it all plays out and whoops, you were wrong. I'm supposed to be with her. I am supposed to be with him. I know I should buy this car. I know I should buy this house. I know this is a smart decision to buy this boat. I know he's making a mistake. I know I should go back to school. I know I should take this promotion. I'm positive I'm a better fit. I'm certain this is a good investment. I know that we should move. And then wouldn't you know it, you get on the other side of that certainty and you were wrong. Like 100% wrong, like dead wrong. It's got to be one of the most interesting things about us as people. You don't always have your best interest in mind. In fact, you don't always see what is best for you. And what's so strange is we can be so sure of something, so 100% unequivocally certain, and just moments later realize, dang, I was way off. I wasn't even like a little bit right. You can't always see what is best for you. But does that make us any less certain the next time around? Nope. Wouldn't you know it, that unwavering, staunch confidence, it comes back with a vengeance harder than ever before. I mean, you're really sure this time. And that's why I say that these really are the four hardest words to pray. Your will be done. Because we as human beings, we are so certain. We're so stubborn. We can be so full of pride. And I mean, you don't have to admit this to anyone else. I'll admit this about myself. I can be so arrogant, so incredibly matter of fact, so opinionated. And all Jesus is asking right, here, right now, all he's saying right here, he's saying, come on come on, let's just be honest with each other. You don't have to admit this to anyone else. You, you, you don't gotta admit this to the person to your right or to your left. You don't have to admit this to your husband, or your wife, or your boyfriend, or your girlfriend, or your friends, or your coworkers. I mean, you don't have to admit this to anyone. This can just stay between us. This can be our little secret, but come on. You get it wrong 
all the time. You aren't really even that good at looking out for you. You don't always have your best interest in mind. The reality is you don't really even know what is best for you. So with all that as the backdrop, Jesus is saying, come on, just give me a shot. Because see, your will, doing things your way, has probably gotten you into a little trouble along the way. You've probably been wrong quite a few times. You've probably made some, my goodness, I really wish I would not have done that type decisions along the way. And Jesus is saying, again, Jesus, the very guy who predicted his own death and he predicted his own resurrection and it actually happened, he is saying, you've tried your will. And how has that turned out? You can't really even get you right. So what do you possibly have to lose by giving me a shot? Because at its core, your will be done means a submission of control. It means submitting control. When we say your will be done, God, it means that we are relinquishing that type of control to God. When we pray, when we ask for his will to be done rather than our own will, we're symbolically going from living like this, which we kind of like living like this, to living like this, which we, again, as human beings, don't really like doing. Now, the irony here is that we're not in control anyway, and I've talked about this before. Any of you that have 20 minutes of life experience, you know this to be true. Because in one moment, you can go from everything being perfect, feels like the world is in the palm of your hands, and 30 seconds later, you get one text, one email, one phone call, and it sends your entire life into a tailspin, and you are reminded yet again that you are not really in control at all. But even despite our past experiences, and even despite the fact that, that we know, whether we really want to admit it or not, that we're not really in control, it's so hard to actually say and truly mean, God, I want your will to be done more than I want my will to be done. God, I want what you want more than what I want. But within this statement that, that Jesus makes here, uh, he creates a sense of urgency to kind of help nudge us over the edge. It's something for me that has been instrumental in, in, in allowing myself to give up the control that I never really had in the first place. And so to better explain this, I, I'm gonna dive into a little bit of Bible school teaching here, and I promise this isn't to show you how much I know about scripture or theology or anything like that, and I promise I won't bore you too much. I'll, I'll go quick here. But one of the most common characteristics that we see uh, within the Hebrew writing style, which Jesus and Matthew, the writer of this book that documents, you know, hey, this whole event, when they say, hey, Jesus, how to pray, and he's teaching them how to pray, they both would have been very, very familiar with this because they were both Jewish men, and so they grew up going to synagogue, and Hebrew uh, is, the, is the Jewish language. In fact, some of you, you probably don't know this. Our Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, is the Jewish scriptures. It is the Hebrew Bible. If you went right now and you left and you went to a Jewish synagogue, you would find the exact same thing that we have in our Old Testament, exact same thing. So Jesus and Matthew would have been very, very familiar with this Hebrew language and very, therefore very familiar with this technique known as parallelism. And parallelism means this, you say something one way and then you say it in another way, you kind of reword it, you say it in another way to amplify the first way. Now if you read the Psalms for instance, which is another book that we find in the Old Testament, most of the Psalms actually follow this, this pattern. So if you're reading the Psalms, you're like, gosh, this feels awfully repetitive. That's not an accident. It, it's a true technique that the writers are trying to use there. And this is what Jesus, again, who would have been very, very familiar with this technique, was doing here in this verse. He says, may your kingdom come soon, that's the first statement, and then he rewords it in a slightly different way in order to amplify the first way. He says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And when we understand that Jesus is using this technique called parallelism here, we're given a pretty incredible definition about what the kingdom of God is, which is important. Because the kingdom of God is talked about all throughout the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, it's referenced all the time. So it's important that we have an understanding of, okay, what does he actually mean when he says kingdom of God? And this is what it means by, by using that technique, parallelism. It's a society on earth where God's will is as perfectly done as it is in heaven. Now, this is why this becomes important for me and you, why it creates a sense of urgency for us, particularly if you're sitting here today and you call yourself a Jesus follower. To be in the kingdom of, of God is to obey the will of God. To be in the kingdom of God is to obey the will of God. The kingdom referenced here has nothing to do with rulers, or nations or countries. It is remarkably personal, it has everything to do with me and you. It demands the submission of my will, of my heart. It demands the submission of my life and it's only when each of us make that personal decision, when we truly submit that the kingdom comes because perhaps God's will being done in your life, perhaps submitting your plan to God's plan might play a role in God's will being done in someone else's life. We as human beings, and I, I totally get this because we all do it, are so quick to think of ourselves and rarely, if ever, think of how we might play a role in someone else's life and how submitting our lives to Christ might have a ripple effect on others. M might have an effect on, on our neighbors and, and our coworkers and our family members, and, and those people that are absolutely closest to us, and how it might have effect, an effect on them, not just here and now on earth, but for eternity. And we naturally think, when we hear something like, come on, that's, that's not fair, there's no chance that, that, that God would leave that much hanging in the balance of me submitting to his will. Are you sure? Are we absolutely positive about that? I certainly don't say this to elevate myself, but what if that was my attitude going to this whole starting a church thing? I've yet to meet the person that starts a church. We often call them church planters. I've yet to meet the church planter that that was their life goal at like 10 years old. You know, you meet plenty of kids that are like, when I grow up, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a nurse. I want to be a teacher. I've never met the church planner, the guy that started a church that was like, man, when I was 10 years old, I knew I wanted to start a church. No, it all began with, with people saying, okay, this is my story. I'm in, God. Your will be done. And what if I, I would have selfishly thought in that moment, God, I don't want to do that. I'll leave that up to someone else. Somebody else can try to touch the lives here in Genesee County and, and in Grand Blake. That, that's, that's, that's not up for me. And I look out here right now and I, I see a lot of faces and I'm reminded already in seven short months how lives have been transformed because of how Jesus has worked through this church. There's seven people being baptized today. It's a testament to how God works through the local church. We can be so quick to say, yeah, if I don't do it, then somebody else will. I'm not sure about that. And you'll never know what that role is, 
what role you might have to play and still until you start praying and meaning your will be done. You know what? Not all of you are gonna be called to start churches. In fact, probably very few of you will. But you all absolutely unequivocally have a role to play in the kingdom of God. And you never know what might hang in the balance of you submitting your will to his will. Paul, in, in his letter to the, the Christians living in Rome, uh, aptly titled Romans, he says this. It's an incredible piece of scripture. He says, he who did not spare his own son, he being God, God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? It is impossible to look at the cross and doubt the love of God. And when you're sure of the love of God, it becomes far easier to actually say, your will be done. Because we are reminded that this is a God that is for us, not against us. He has our best interest in mind. So it's not like we are handing our will over to somebody that might harm us to someone that's gonna to try to screw with us, to some monster that's going to use us for his personal enjoyment. It's so much better than that. He is for you. And if you ever doubt that, remind yourself, he's so incredibly for you that he gave up his own son for you. And not you in like broad terms, but specifically you. So after you find your place, after you find that place where you can get alone and eliminate distractions, and after you start praying by thanking and praising God, say, as maybe as hard as it might be, at least initially, Heavenly Father, I want your will to be done more, this is hard, more than I want my will to be done. I submit myself to you.